following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Today we'll be discussing the hermit, which is a spiritual archetype often associated with an initiate, a person who enters a spiritual path seeking to initiate or begin a new uh, life, a new spiritual development within themselves. As a hermit is often associated with solitude and loneliness, it's also interesting that today's talk is going to cover the importance of relationships, not just from a mundane perspective, but especially from a spiritual perspective of how relationships can help us on our spiritual journey. The basic idea of relationships in psychology is that they can be extremely important and helpful for your mental health and for your physical health as well. If you have really good relationships in your life, you're at a greater advantage of healing faster, living longer, having better health outcomes with regards to mental illness, or physical problems as well. In addition to that, if you've got a lot of toxic or negative or stressful relationships in your life, then that can hinder your physical health. People who are extremely withdrawn and isolated also tend to live shorter lives, to have more health problems. So how do we understand this seeming contradiction between becoming a spiritual hermit, a person who is advancing on a higher level of being and living seemingly in isolation with the idea that relationships are really important parts of life, that we are living in a society where we need to interact in a healthy way with other people. All of us have relationships at different levels. It's really also important to say up front that sometimes relationships can be abusive. So when I'm talking today about living a healthy spiritual life and having healthy relationships that aid our spiritual development, I want to be very explicit up front that if anyone is in an abusive relationship, we are not condoning staying in an abusive relationship. If you are in a relationship where someone is threatening to harm you or to harm others, if someone is exhibiting controlling behaviors, or of course, if there's physical or sexual violence in a relationship, 
then it's very important that you seek community resources or professional help to determine what is the best way for you to safely remove yourself from that type of relationship. Sometimes people will stay in a relationship thinking they're doing the right thing because they love their partner and they want to sacrifice for their partner and serve their partner even when they're being abused. But in an abusive relationship, not only are you harming yourself by staying in that type of relationship, you're also allowing the other person to continue to commit a harmful action, which is not good for their spiritual journey either. So just to state upfront and very explicitly that the relationships we're talking about today and overcoming difficulties or criticisms in relationships is not pertaining to abusive relationships, which we definitely believe that people should seek resources in their community to, to get help and get out of those types of relationships. But abusive relationships aside, we all probably have at least a few relationships in our life that have some unpleasantness in them where people can really push our buttons or criticize us, or people aren't giving us what we think we want or deserve from them, like respect or admiration. So many people who are seeking a spiritual path are sometimes seeking a chance to escape from relationships or family obligations and say, well, I'm above that because I'm on a spiritual path. That can be a problem because we are in relationships for a reason. Relationships are an opportunity to learn about ourselves. Many times we can't see ourselves clearly, and other people see things in us that we don't want to see. So criticisms can be the best way to start propelling our spiritual journey. Tests and ordeals with other people, conflicts with other people, if we know how to transform that, if we know how to study ourselves and our behaviors and meditation to really understand what is going on in our dynamic with another person or a group of people, we can see something new about ourselves that can give us the choice of if we want to continue with that characteristic or behavior in ourselves, or if we want to change it and adopt something healthier. That's the whole journey of spiritual transformation, right? Finding what in us we'd like to change. We'd like to get rid of some of what we consider to be harmful or negative or dragging us down. Not in other people, not in the relationships as much as in ourselves. We never really have power over other people. So we have to maximize the power that we have over ourselves to be able to change our lives. You know, I've verified in my life that when I significantly change my own attitudes about people, my own tendencies and behaviors towards people, that that radically changes the relationship that I have with those people. Not every relationship is going to change in a huge substantial way. But at least in small ways, we can make a big difference in our relationship if we are trying to improve ourselves, rather than just getting frustrated and blaming other people all the time. So where do relationships come from? Well, there are two sorts of relationships in life, inherited relationships, like a family that you're born into or that you're raised by. And then relationships that we choose, or at least we seem to choose. We feel a connection to a certain person and we think, I'm going to become friends with them or I'm going to date them. So these relationships of choice or inheritance really have their root in karma. In this esoteric tradition, we talk a lot about past lives and how the actions of past lives can be carried over that energy, the consequences of past actions carries over when we incarnate into a new physical body. And so with our relationships and our family especially, there's very important karmic ties. 
the past actions, whatever wrongs we committed or whatever good deeds we did, can determine the quality of what relationships we have in this life. Also, the character that we carry with us from life to life can determine which relationships we choose or who we feel attracted to, what we're looking for. If we had a really strong desire in a past life to be with a certain type of person, we can carry that with us and then seek out that type of person in our life. Sometimes this can be to our benefit, but a lot of times this is to our detriment, that we're caught in a cycle of pain and being drawn to the wrong types of people, whether as friends or romantic partners, and we don't know why we can't seem to break out of that cycle. So it's important, really important, to understand the origin of our relationships. Through meditation and some serious uh, work with, on oneself, you can start to penetrate into the memories of your past lives. But even if we can't do that, we can study our present life to really understand something about what's drawn us into these relationships, whether by choice or inheritance. And we can understand what we need to change in ourselves in this life to have better relationships in our future lifetimes. Salman Vior is the founder of this modern Gnostic movement. And he wrote in his book, Beyond Death, about three types of marriage bonds. I think this applies to all relationships, even beyond marriage. But of course, the person that you marry is a very significant bond. And so that's kind of the archetype that we're looking at here. Here's what he stated. There are three types of marriage bonds. First, karmic. Second, dharmic. And third, cosmic. The first type consists of pain, misery, hunger, nakedness, disgrace. The second consists of success, happiness, love, economic progress, etc. And the third is only for the chosen souls, pure, holy. The third brings, as it is natural, inexhaustible happiness. So if we're thinking about karmic relationships, they bring us a lot of pain. And they have important lessons, because probably there were some traits that we brought with us to this lifetime or actions that we committed in past lifetimes that are causing the same cycle to repeat in this lifetime. So by studying the nature of that relationship that's bringing you pain, the role that you're playing in perhaps perpetuating or causing more pain in that relationship and then choosing to change, even if in this lifetime you can't salvage the relationship, even if something happens to end that relationship or it's necessary to end that relationship if it's abusive. It could mean that in a future lifetime, your relationship to that particular person could be very different because you acted from a place of compassion and wisdom rather than just unconsciously repeating the same frustrated desires and, and selfish intentions. The second would be what would be the outcome of those types of changes, dharmic relationships where we feel real inspiration from the other person, support and success and happiness with the other person. And then finally, this type of cosmic relationship would be a relationship had by an initiate, a person who's really on another level, a person who's really tapped into that divine path and is really going beyond just the mundane idea of, of healthy, good life but really stepping into the spiritual life, which is superior to that. I'd like you to take a moment to reflect on your most important relationship. Which of the three is it? And what would you like it to become?
it's really important to take some time to apply teachings to our real life and not just think about them as an idea, but to see how any type of spiritual teaching gives us an opportunity to understand our own struggles, our own suffering, and gives us an opportunity to change. So the key to healthy spiritual relationships is the whole purpose and the work of an initiate. It's interesting that the hermit symbolizes solitude. That doesn't necessarily mean that if we become an initiate, we're going to run away to the mountains and escape all of our problems and never see our family or friends again. We may be an initiate living anonymously here in the world, fulfilling our obligations in society and helping people without anyone being aware. The key to that is the renunciation of self-interest. So not just to have healthy relationships, which we can learn through basic psychology, but to really go above and beyond that and to be a spiritual servant to all the people around us, whether they're an enemy or a friend, a family member, or a stranger, to really see that one person has the power to make a extreme difference in the world and in other people's lives if they are a person who's been able to develop some spiritual virtue, a strong character, and the willingness to sacrifice for others. And that's why we hear about a parable, the great pearl, where a merchant went everywhere searching for a pearl of great value. And then when he found it, he renounced everything and gave up his life for this pearl. Doesn't mean we're going to leave behind our physical life and our relationships, but rather that we renounce our psychological attachment to relationships. A lot of times when we're seeking a relationship or a friendship, we're thinking about what can I get out of it? What's this person going to give to me? And what are the benefits that I'm going to get from this relationship? That's the opposite of what an initiate would be thinking if they were to enter into a relationship. An initiate coming from a place of compassion doesn't need anything from the other person, but has their own inner strength coming from divinity. So when we've really been able to establish ourselves and our spiritual connection to divinity, then whatever misfortunes or fortunes might befall us in life, we know that all of that is temporary. Relationships will come and go. Even the strongest, longest lasting relationship will end with death. We have to have a, a more permanent relationship and the only permanent relationship is the soul's relationship to divinity. If we are establishing that, then we would have the courage to be able to renounce the desires for worldly things, fame, money, lust, pride, vanity, all of the things that we might think are going to give us what we want from life. And when we renounce our desire for those things, then we stop hurting people. Because if you think about the people who've hurt you the most or the times when you've hurt people the most, it's often because you've been driven by a desire. You wanted something from them or they wanted something from you. If we can get that self-interest out of the relationship, then there can be a true harmony of souls. Even if the other person is not at that same level and they're still self-interested, you can see it so much more clearly when you're not blinded by your own egotism and your own self-interest. You can see really what are their intentions and you can have compassion for them. And you can 
approach the relationship with wisdom and prudence and understand a better way to have a healthy interaction with them. But most of the time, people who enter spiritual paths struggle a lot with their relationships. Maybe they're going through a lot of changes. Their spiritual journey isn't understood by their current friends or family. And so a lot of people just give up. They say, my family doesn't understand me. They don't support me in what I'm trying to do now. And they just try to end all their relationships. Rather than changing psychologically and changing their attitudes towards the people who aren't understanding what they're going through, they decide to just physically remove themselves from those people. If that's an abusive relationship, that could be really a good idea. But in a lot of cases, people just can't stand the criticism or that people aren't respecting or understanding what they're experiencing in their spiritual life. But we lose through that action the opportunity to grow and to change with the people who are in our lives for a reason. They're in our lives because of some kind of previous action or relationship or cause. And so instead of understanding why are these people in my life, why do I have this conflict with them, why do I have these attitudes towards them, people just run away. And that's really a disadvantage for spiritual life. I just wanted to ask you because it seems like when we talk about relationships and people that really hurt you and the things you just kind of decide you're going to step away from. And I'm thinking that how does it relate to if people just don't have compassion and you just feel that you've just been drained? It was like all family, friends, you may have a few people that relate to you, but could be talked about the various forms of relationships. Right. But when you feel that you, you exhaust that, which is the compassion you have or that unconditional kind of, I don't really hold it against you. But then it's like, how do you get to the point where you say, I can't take that, you know? Cause it's just, a, it's, a, it's an energy that you feel. And then some people that are so self-centered, they just drain you for everything they get from you. So then eventually you're like, I don't know if you call that abuse or you just like, so what's important is if we don't have that kind of spiritual strength yet, right? We all have spiritual aspirations. We want to get that connection to divinity, but maybe I'm not there yet. And these people are really draining me or we're around people who are toxic and they're trying to drain you because they're trying to manipulate you and get something from you. So as I mentioned earlier, if we don't have self-interest involved, then we have no problem stepping away from a person like that. And even if it's a family member, we might lessen the amount of times that we have to be around that person, but take advantage of the times when we do have to be around them to learn something. And if we need a break and that person's sucking us dry, to step back and to take some time away from that person. Really, it's aspirational that we get to the point where we get everything that we need from divinity, but on the path there, there's going to be a lot of those types of ordeals. And how should I be interacting with this person? Well, we can never really sacrifice our own well-being for the sake of serving someone else's desires. And the problem is people say, I want this from you, and we think the right thing to do is to give people what they want, and that's service for that person. But many times people want something that's not actually good for them. And if people are wanting to just have somebody around that they can beat up on mm -hmm. or have somebody around that they can use to get everything that they want from them all the time, 
then it's not in our interest to be that for someone. And we have to recognize that the right thing to do is to step away from that person and stop giving them our energy. Because if we're giving all of our energy to a person who's abusing that gift, then we're not using that energy to develop ourselves. And I will talk in a, in a few slides about changing where we're directing our energy and how that helps us a lot in those types of situations. But if our relationships aren't that bad, if our relationships aren't draining us dry, and we do have a place that we can kind of have our sanctuary, our home, a space where we can separate from people for a while to be able to do our spiritual work, then we can also use the obligations of our ordinary life as a chance to develop our character. Spiritual work is very difficult and requires a lot of strength of character and a lot of willpower. We might need a break from people to really uh, heal and to restore our energy. And a healing retreat can be a way to do that. But if we go away on retreat for 10 years and then we re-enter society and we have all the same problems that we left with, it's because we haven't really changed. That's why I advocate for a reciprocal notion of healing yourself, taking the time to do your spiritual work, and maybe that's in isolation or maybe that's with a spiritual group, but also to not run away from the world and the, the duties that we have to be a good citizen. Gurdjieff gives a teaching about this that I'd like to share. Gurdjieff was a teacher of Western esotericism. He talks about the common man as a sort of archetype that many people look down upon. Here's exactly what he said. People who are definitely thinking about spiritual paths, particularly people of intellectual ways, very often look down on the common man and in general despise the virtues of the common man. But they only show by this their own personal unsuitability for any spiritual path whatsoever. Because no spiritual path can begin from a level lower than the common man. This is very often lost sight of on people who are unable to organize their own personal lives. Those who are too weak to struggle with and conquer life dream of the spiritual paths or what they consider are spiritual paths because they think it will be easier for them than life and because this, so to speak, justifies their weakness and their inadaptability. A man who can be a good common man is much more helpful from the point of view of the spiritual path than a tramp who thinks himself much higher than a common man. Gurdjieff calls tramps all the so-called intelligentsia, artists, poets, any kind of bohemian in general, who despises the common man and who at the same time would be unable to exist without him. Ability to orientate oneself in life is a very useful quality from the point of view of the spiritual work. A good common man should be able to support at least 20 persons by his own labor. What is a man worth who is unable to do this? So as I was mentioning about people who look at spirituality as a way out of life and out of their problems, rather than seeing that life and the problems that it presents to us, whether through our job or our relationships or our family, is actually the way into the spiritual world. That the spiritual world is not somewhere floating outside of our world and we're trying to escape there, but rather that we're using the challenges of our life to be able to develop ourselves and our spiritual strength. 
We see this echoed in a, another passage from the founder of this tradition, Salman Vior, when he talks about the requisite. The requisite to become a spiritual initiate, a person who really is trying to transcend just the common man, the good, ordinary, common person that can contribute a lot to society and that can care for their family and make a difference in the world in a small way, but to make the sacrifice to perform a higher service. To become an initiate is the ultimate sacrifice that a human can make. We look at a person like Jesus or Buddha or prophets and saints who really gave their life to God, but also in service of humanity. Any person who gives their life to God but then runs away and escapes from society and never deals with people again isn't really achieving the goal. The goal of developing spiritually is so that we have something to give back to the world. That takes a lot of preparation and a lot of work. Just like if you wanted to become the best at a certain job, like a doctor, you would have to study extensively. You would have to train and practice your skill set for years to become the best at that. And for some reason, people think that being an initiate is different from that, that it's just innately I'm better than other people and I'm a spiritual person. When really the work of the initiate requires a lot of training, a lot of practices, a lot of self-reflection and knowledge over the years. That all begins with our current life, with our challenges, with our relationships most importantly, and having a mirror to look at ourselves. He mentions that we need to become good head of household. So even if we're not um, currently in a relationship or the head of a family, how are we being a good head of household towards other people? It's also important not to get too fanatic. We get excited about our spiritual life. We get excited about the journey that we're on. And then if we get fanatic and try to force other people to be in a place where they're not, that can be harmful to our relationships and it can be harmful to other people. The most important rule of white magic is that you respect the free will of others. You're not here to seek power to control other people and get everything that you want from other people, but you're in the spiritual work to improve yourself, to benefit yourself, and then thereby to be a benefit to others because your level of being is always improving and elevating. In the beginning, it can be hard to just establish the foundation in our physical life. Like I said, the aspiration we have to become an initiate might seem unrealistic from where we're sitting today. But all of that begins by gradually, day by day, reflecting on our lives, reflecting on the choices we're making, the relationships we have, the attitudes we have, and transforming that, transforming ourselves. Salman Vior wrote that the cornerstone of revolutionary psychology requires that one has a perfect equilibrium at home by being a good spouse, a good parent, a good sibling, and a good child. One must have perfect completion of his duties that exist with this suffering humanity. One must convert himself into a decent person. Whoever does not fulfill these requirements will never be able to advance in these revolutionary studies. So if we find ourselves feeling a lot of anger or animosity towards people, we find that we constantly struggle with wounded pride, like people aren't respecting us enough, that's where we need to start by converting ourselves, by changing those vices into virtues and finding out what is good in this person that I can really love to transform this relationship. How can I have humility with this person 
and compassion for this person. Or if it's a situation where the person is draining us and it's not a good relationship, then how do I develop the strength to, to stop this person, to remove myself or to stand up for myself in a healthy way that doesn't allow the person to continue harming themselves and me through their wrong actions. We think of the spiritual path as a sort of vertical line through life, that one can go up spiritually and one can also go down spiritually. While we're progressing through our physical life, which is the horizontal line of life, we are aging, we're maturing physically, we're developing. But are we maturing and developing spiritually? Today, if I'm at one level of being, let's say, hopefully, I'm a decent person. I'm a good, common woman. Then, 10 years from now, will I have developed in my spiritual life to the point where I'm at a higher level of being, when I'm experiencing happiness and genuine love for others, strength of character, virtues, and able to live that in my life? Or, 10 years from now, will I be at a lower level of being, where I'm enmeshed in suffering, where I have all kinds of attachments and desires to uh, people or worldly situations that are never going to be fulfilled and just cause me more pain by wanting them all the more. It's good to reflect on why we're starting off with a good foundation, but also where do we intend to go? And if we're only seeking worldly things, we may accumulate a lot physically in our life, but when we die, all of that's gone. If we're seeking spiritual development, then whatever we accumulate will carry with us into future lifetimes. This is the goal, and it's also the work. While we aspire to become the initiate, the archetype that's represented in Arcanum 9 in the Tarot, the hermit, also the hermit encloses the secrets by which we can gradually become like that. Nothing in nature occurs overnight, so we should expect, just like with any other skill or any other level of development, that it takes time and it takes effort. Meditation especially is a very important science for those who seek to really know and understand themselves and to change. But the three tools of the hermit can give us a clue into what we are working toward and also how to work toward it. The first is the lamp of Trismegistus, which Eliphas Levy explains is reason illuminated by science. And the second is the mantle or the cloak of Apollonius, which is full and complete self-possession. The third is the staff of the patriarchs, is the help of secret and everlasting forces of nature. When we are working on this path, we need first to begin with the lamp of Trismegistus, and that reason is related to our intellectual brain, our ideas, our understanding. Do we have wisdom or do we feel constantly confused and in ignorance? The real illumination of our mind comes from divinity. So working with prayer, working with spiritual practice, working with meditation is what is going to allow us to gain that lamp, that lantern through which we are guided. Most importantly of all, we're guided by our conscience. And if we ignore our conscience over years and years and years, that voice can become very silent. And so we need to work to reactivate that voice of the conscience. And spiritual practices in prayer are a great method to do that. 
really dedicating some time every day to divinity, towards your relationship with divinity through that practice and prayer is really essential to reawaken the conscience. And then when we have our conscience awake, we allow that to be our light that guides us through life, to know what is right, to know when we need to end a relationship or when we need to go and heal a relationship. All of that comes from our conscience. And all of that can vary by situation. So that's why no one can give you a one-size-fits-all. You know your relationship best of all. You know yourself. And you're the one who can meditate and have divinity guide you on what you should do in that relationship. The second tool that the hermit has is the mantle or the cloak. Eliphas Levi states that the mantle of Apollonius is full and complete self-possession, which isolates the sage from blind tendencies. When we are controlled by our desires, we are blind, spiritually speaking, because those desires can guide us into all kinds of problems and difficult situations and we don't know how to get out of it because we're driven just by desire and that's what keeps it spinning, keeps the cycle going, turns the wheel of suffering as we learn about in Buddhism. To have full and complete self-possession is to not only be controlled by other people, but most importantly, to not be controlled by our own desires. If someone comes along and they tempt me with a proposition, for example, that they're going to give me a promotion at my job where I'll have a lot more power and a lot more money. But in order to get that promotion, they want me to manipulate or hurt someone else, maybe their enemy. Well, if I'm driven by desire for power and control, then I'm going to give in to that demand. And I'm going to maybe get what I want materially, but lose something of extreme value to me spiritually. If I'm in full and complete self-possession, then no matter what temptation that person might offer to me, I follow the lamp of my conscience and I do what is right. That's a truly powerful person, is a person who's not manipulated by their worldly desires and attachments. That person cannot be controlled by anyone. They might be killed dying for what they believe is right, but they have true power in that they are self-possessed. That's really important in relationships because when we talk about the renunciation and the self-sacrifice that's necessary to have a really healthy spiritual relationship with someone, that's only possible if we also have this full and complete self-possession. As long as we want something from the other person, then we are at risk of being manipulated or falling into the trap of our own desire. The final one is the staff of the patriarch. Well, in this teaching, we talk about the forces of nature and how nature is constantly creating. We see cycles of birth, growth, maturity, decay, and death. Nature is always creating and destroying. In the same way, we have a force of creation within us, which is talked about in a lot of different lectures. But to summarize, our force of creation to create life is in our sexual energy. And if we work with practices to redirect our sexual energy inward, up the spinal column and into the brain, this can illuminate us. This can re-establish our connection to divinity. That is the staff. The staff is a symbol, esoterically, of the spinal column. The magic wand of the magician is the spinal column. When we have that help of those secrets, because all this knowledge has been occult for a long time, but everlasting forces of nature, we develop true willpower. We develop a willpower that can stand against the world.
even when the world is fighting very hard to force us to do what is wrong. If we think about where we direct our energy, a lot of energy is expended chasing desires. There is a certain amount of energy we have to expend every day for our physical life to fulfill our duties and our obligations, to work at our job or go to school or take care of our family or our partners. That requires energy. But when there's not attachment there, when there's not a, a ton of egotistical desire that's craving, then we're using a lot less energy than would be normally expended. For many people nowadays, our mind is always running, running, running. And our emotions are always being stimulated by one thing or another. That causes a lot of burnout and drain where we feel we have nothing left to give to our spiritual work. We sit to meditate and we're just exhausted. So it's really important to look at the things that we really desire and to lay them on the altar before divinity and give up our desire for those worldly things as the payment for the one pearl of great value, which is our soul. If we really want to claim our spiritual development to the highest pitch, we can't have competing interests. We can't have a bunch of other things that we want along with it. Now, that's the reality of where we're at. We want a bunch of other things, but we need to work on that over time. We need to look at what we want and ask ourselves if it's really going to produce benefit. If I have a lot of anger towards a certain person and I really want revenge, I want to hurt them, and I continue to act on that for 10 years, what's going to happen? What's going to be the outcome of acting on that desire? Well, a lot of pain for me and for them, and really nothing of spiritual benefit. In fact, a lot of spiritual detriment in this case. But if I have a longing to become a better person, to do better in my job because I have a job that's serving other people in one way or another, and I continue to invest in that longing, that natural longing of the soul over 10 years, who will I become? What will be the outcome? So every day we can meditate on what we see in our day, what kind of emotions come up, what are we seeing in our relationships, and to reflect and ask ourselves from the point of view of our own conscience if this is really helping us on our spiritual journey or if this is harming us. In addition to these three tools, Eliphas Levi also taught four conditions to attain the Sanctum Regnum, which is the Holy Kingdom, the Kingdom of God, the Kingdom of Heaven that exists hidden within our physical life. That even within our physical life, as we're moving along that horizontal line of existence, we can be also ascending into heavenly states of consciousness, increasing our wisdom, increasing our spiritual wakefulness and our ability to see the truth of things, even spiritual powers. The four conditions that Eliphas Levi teaches us help us to attain the knowledge and power of the Magi. They are an intelligence illuminated by study, an intrepidity which nothing can check, a will which cannot be broken, and a prudence which nothing can corrupt and nothing intoxicate. To know, to dare, to will, to keep silence. Such are the four words of the Magus inscribed upon the four symbolical forms of the Sphinx. To know is an intelligence illuminated by study, not just study of books and scriptures, which can be helpful, but especially study of ourselves. 
because that is how we can really transform. As much as we might believe or feel inspired by something that we read in a book, we'll never really verify it unless it's something we ourselves have lived. That's why the best way to study spiritually is to study each night by meditating on our day. What did we see in ourselves? What did we see in other people? What suffering did we experience or what suffering did we witness? What good deeds did we witness or do? And what were the effects of that? That's where everything begins. And that's what reawakens the heart and the conscience and allows us to really change as a person in a positive direction. To not try to become a better person because we want more from the world, but to be less self-absorbed and therefore establish a greater character of the soul and allow the soul to grow and thrive instead of an egotistical sense of self. The second, to dare, which is an intrepidity which nothing can check. So this doesn't mean to just argue with everyone and be stubborn and never do what anybody else wants you to do. Sometimes that can actually be a, a big problem. What might be the right thing to do is to sacrifice what our pride wants and to find a compromise or to find a way to be agreeable with other people. But this type of daring that he's talking about is to dare to do what is right, to not be stopped by any kind of threat or temptation or desire that we have from the world, but rather to have the courage to do what's right, to have the courage to sacrifice even some of our most longed-for dreams if we really come to understand that they're not going to produce real benefit for ourselves or for others. We need a lot of willpower for that. And a will which cannot be broken is a unified will. And that's why we see again and again the symbol that the hermit renounced everything and only dedicates themselves to spiritual development. Because as long as we have our will going in 15 different directions, then we're never going to really be able to advance consistently in the direction of spiritual development. We might take two steps in that direction and then one step on a side path and then we'll never really get to where we're trying to go. That will is really related with the power of the staff and the spinal column. Finally, to keep silence, which doesn't just mean to not talk about the things that we're experiencing, although sometimes it's very prudent to not talk about the things you're experiencing if other people are not going to understand and it's not really going to benefit them. If we're just talking about what we're going through because we're excited about it and we want everyone to know what we're experiencing, then that could be a very um, harmful choice. Many initiates kept extreme silence and privacy in their lives, even if they had worldly obligations that they were fulfilling, because they understood that talking about the spiritual things with people who are not in the same place or not interested can create a lot of conflict and problems and even persecution. But importantly, to keep silence is an act of emotional and intellectual self-possession, to be able to be prudent and to not be corrupted by things in the world, to not be intoxicated by our own desires or what other people might offer to us, but rather to always keep our heart and our mind focused on being of benefit to other people. And this is a constant process of renouncing renouncing what we want every day for the benefit of someone else. That doesn't mean that we will never experience happiness or that we'll never have positive relationships where other people are admiring or loving us, but that we renounce the attachment to it so that if the person who loves us today tomorrow says, I hate you and I never want to see you again, we allow that 
we understand, we have the psychological hermitage in which we can separate from the world and understand that everything in life is temporary. And what is wonderful today could be bitter tomorrow. And that's okay as long as we are learning from both of them and changing spiritually. So to conclude, uh, I'd like to take a look at these two archetypes here from the tarot. We have the hermit, Arcanum 9, which we've been looking at, and we can see that he is a wise old man, wise with age. And on the left, and we have pictured the fool, a young man. Well, some of the key differences to reflect on here are first the lamp. The fool has no lamp. And in fact, he's right on the edge of a cliff. Because he's not illuminated by divinity or by his own conscience, he could very easily fall to his death. The fool also carries a staff, but that staff has the baggage of the world, all of his attachments, all of his desires. And rather than supporting himself on the staff, the staff is weighing him down. He's carrying those desires with him and is setting off on a journey, but without real understanding of where he's going. Finally, the clothing. We don't know what the hermit is hiding underneath his cloak. He's prudent. He's keeping the mystery of his being and his development hidden from the world and doing that work in secret. Whereas the fool is showing off and wearing beautiful clothing and trying to make an impression on everybody with how great he is. And I say this as a warning, not just to reflect on which one are we more like, but also to understand that there are people in the world who are on spiritual paths, but spiritual paths that are the path of the fool, spiritual paths that seek power and have a lot of worldly attachments and investment, people who will uh, show off to try to gain followers. If we are seeking that from our spiritual work, that we can become uh, this beautiful figure with a lot of power to manipulate and control other people and get what we want or gain worldly things, then that's considered black magic. That's considered using all the gifts and resources at our disposal, but to do something that's going to harm people and in turn will harm us. Whereas the hermit is the path of white magic, the path that is not seeking to gain any glory or fame for himself, but is sacrificing everything, is renouncing everything psychologically in order to lean on the staff of that divinity, to use all of the illumination and resources that were given by divinity to walk the bitter, lonely path of spiritual development. And this path can produce the real, lasting happiness of the soul. But if we ask ourselves, why is the hermit in solitude, it's because the spiritual work can be painful. There are parts of us that don't want to give up the things that we cling to in our life. And even if we recognize that when we die, we're going to lose all that anyway, something in us doesn't want to give it up, doesn't want to let it go. And when the hermit cuts away those attachments to the world, that can be a very painful process. And the spiritual path can be lonely because even if you have relationships, you're always aware that your self-interest and your attachment to that person is of harm to them. And you're always separating that from that person to protect them and also to protect yourself in your spiritual development. 
That can be a path of loneliness and solitude, but it is the path on which we can enter into a higher level of being. And so that's where we all begin. Yes? Ending on that, do you believe that the hermit can have a satisfying you know, relationship and love? Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you asked about that. So we should, we probably will have relationships in our life which are healthy, especially as we're changing. As we're becoming better people, we attract people towards us who might be resonating at that level. And as we change our behaviors and start in healthier behaviors, we're going to be around other people who have those healthier behaviors. And that's good, and that can really be a benefit to us in our life. But the question is about, are we attached to that? Because at any moment, that could change or that could be lost. And are we going to lose everything we've developed in ourselves as a result of losing that relationship? So if we're really taking the benefit of the relationship and making sure that we're not developing a strong attachment, then we can take all of that with us throughout life. But our own development and our own character cannot be dependent on whether other people are treating us well or not. So, for me to understand, basically the hermit can enjoy love and relationships and marriage, but they see it as an experience that is an extension of their spiritual journey rather than an attachment of their desires. Yes, so a hermit can have relationships, but the question is, why are we in the relationship? Is it driven by, I want to learn something for my own benefit? Or is it driven by, I genuinely feel love for this person and want to care for them and be with them? long-term. So it's servitude. Yeah, real compassion though, and that can be really tricky because we find ourselves in a lot of situations where we think we're doing what's compassionate for people, but maybe we're being deceived by our own desire or we're being, you know, what we're doing isn't actually of their benefit. But yes, a hermit can have relationships if that's what life brings us. If life is bringing us certain people, then we should try to figure out why is this person in my life? How can I be of service to them in a real way, but never expect that that person's going to be there permanently? Now, uh, the picture of the hermit showed him, uh, you know, solitude. Obviously, light can become gray from the walking away, and the light in front of him is what keeps sustaining him. Would you say that that's him at a high pitch? I would say that. It's a, it's a symbol. So the fact that he is isolated and gray and kind of turning off all of the desires, like the world can be very bright, can be very intoxicating, very tempting, but he's turning away from that. He's going into the night. And like you said, only carrying the lamp that guides him. And the spiritual night is a pretty common story or allegory that we hear where we have to go and look at the dark parts of our life in order to get there. I don't think that the hermit is the end goal. I think that Christ is the end goal, right? A person who can really channel divinity and be a light in the world. But the hermit is the starting point and the beginning of the path. Also, you mentioned Gurdjieff and you know, his relationship, the harmonious development of man's relationship with developing uh, bodies and uh, how he, he professed to be interacting with uh, the lower rungs of society for, as a tool, he would say, to develop, use that friction to develop that permanent divine eye. That's what he would say about that. Uh, but he, but contradictory to what he was always, his uh, 
Petey Ostensky was his main guy. Thomas DeHartman was around these lavish situations. So, uh, how would you how would you relate that to being uh, developing sincerely amongst like the lower rung, you know? And wouldn't you need to surround yourself like Gerdit did? with the highest intelligentsia or the highest pitch of people that you Yeah, it's a really good question because Gurdjieff is very controversial. And I also think that he was at a level past maybe the hermit that we're, we're trying to work through. So in order to get to the level where we can make those kind of decisions like what he made, uh, we have a little bit more development to do. But I will say that, like you mentioned, he hung out with people who were considered the lower echelon of society and also did attract some prominent intellectual figures to him. And that's because, you know, we don't have to discriminate on people based on their worldly situation, but really to see the heart of a person. If somebody's brought into our life and they can, you know, benefit from what we have to give, then it doesn't matter if they are poor or rich or, um, you know, famous or infamous. But like you said, really focusing on what is the purpose of that relationship for my development and for their development? Is there a question here too? You mentioned to attempt to conserve energy so that when at the end of the day, we have the sufficient energy to conduct our work. My question is, I'm in construction. I went through a stage of sitting to meditate and struggling within 15 to 20 minutes. This occurred for many months. What can I do to get through this obstacle? Yeah, so if you're feeling physical discomfort when you're sitting to meditate, lie down. Lie down in a posture on your back that will help you to stay awake uh, because meditation is really essential. So we should be trying to do it every day in one way or another. But if we're feeling a lot of physical pain, that can be a big obstacle. So um, as well, if you're working a very difficult physical job and you're feeling drained by that, maybe doing some meditation in the morning instead of waiting until the evening. Uh, physical labor certainly can can drain a lot of energy, but also pay attention to your emotional and intellectual energy and how you're spending that in the time that you're not at work. And finding ways to balance, to rest physically, but also to continue to develop your heart and your intellect through some kind of esoteric practices or studies. Any other questions here? I don't really have a question. It was more... This has been incredibly validating. I had no idea what this was even about. Even when the discussion, it was, I just saw meditation and spiritual. I'm literally separating from my husband, moving to a city that I don't know mm -hmm. as a way of healing and just exploration. And, and it feels really transformative in a way that I've never felt before. And it feels like this is like the part of the journey of my life that I really need to do. Mm -hmm. I do meditate on a regular basis. I have done Vipassana meditation retreats. And, but it's been this, and I want to make sure I'm speaking up on the place of ego, like look at me, but it's more about putting <laughs> all this together because everything you're saying just makes a lot of sense in terms of being able to conserve your energy, pull yourself from relationships. I've just recently connected with my family in a way because I was separated from them. But now I'm able to connect with them in a way that has boundaries and okay. still confronting a lot of fear and confusion in terms of what to do. Um, but in terms of the divinity, all this journey has made me, 
but not necessarily atheist. It is atheist. That's kind of what I've been claiming, but not so much atheism as much as just wiping the slate clean in terms of what it is that I believe in order to get to that place of understanding. So instead of carrying any beliefs with yes. you, you're trying to know yes. for yourself what's yeah. the truth. Yeah. And that could be a good, yeah, good starting point. So, so we'll just see. I'm literally doing this in about two weeks. Yeah, well, good luck. And I hope you have a chance. Yeah, meditate on what you've learned. Meditate on your relationships. I mean, even if they're behind you, there's a chance to learn. But it is about like creating new relationships with people, and yeah. but not doing it in a way of like separating yourself and not like like I'm doing this in a way of like by myself, self-possessed, mm -hmm. but not isolating. Yeah, yeah. You're finding ways to intentionally and consciously create new connections with maybe yes. family or other relationships that are healthy. And we have to do that in small doses because if we try to make a massive change right away, everybody's going to resist that. But to be intentional about your relationship, to reflect on why did I end this relationship before, or maybe you didn't have a choice, I don't know. And how do I want this relationship to go? What actions do I need to be taking that are going to make it a healthy relationship. Because if we were contributing in a way to make it toxic, then we have an opportunity to change. So thanks for sharing. How come the fool is our problem 21? In the Gnostic Tarot deck that we use, which is different from the one I was showing here in the PowerPoint, the fool is our Canum 21, also known as transmutation. And the reason that it is right before 22, the completion of the work, is because all of us experience an extreme ordeal right before we reach the end. And this is an opportunity <laughs> to fall back into all of the temptations that we have overcome along the way or to triumph and to reach the end of the work and to finish the self-perfection. 21 also synthesizes to three, and we see an initiation the, uh, the arcanum of the hermit, the nine, which is three times three. So you should also study about the three brains and conquering those three brains if you want to understand the fool. Are you talking about the three brains that Gurdjieff talked about? Yes. Or the three brains like subconscious, superconscious? The three brains that Gurdjieff talked about, the intellectual center related with the, the physical brain, the emotional center or emotional brain in the heart, and then the motor instinctive sexual center related with the body as well. Sure. So with all that said, I'm so glad I did say all that. So going on initiating a journey, a hermit journey, like what would be some tools in order to have the understanding, to make connections, in order to get the information, in order to continue the journey? What would be some recommendation? Well, the most important tools are going to be our spiritual practice. And in this tradition, we use these three, three forces for the transformation of consciousness. The first is death, and that comes through meditation. Death is the practice through which we look at what is causing our suffering. And that's meditating every day on what are you seeing in yourself and in your life. The second is birth, which relates to pranayama for single people, uh, transmuting your sexual energy and conserving that force in a way that allows you to awaken spiritually and to change. And the third force is sacrifice, which means in our physical life, if we see a way that we could do something good, something of really profound service for others, and we know in our conscience that this is right, but it's very difficult, and it's something that we think, oh yeah, but I could also just not bother doing that, that we take the action to do that. 
If we're working with those three together, meditation, transmutation, and sacrifice, we can advance very quickly and learn a lot. But of course, scriptures have a lot of veiled symbols that teach this path. And in our tradition, we have several books, like the one you have there, which start to unveil the secrets of the path. And so if you're studying that closely, it should open and unlock many other scriptures from a variety of different world religions and traditions. And you'll see them referenced there, but you'll also understand the symbols in world religions in a different way. And so that's the study of the initiate, to really understand uh, the ancient science of spiritual transformation. I think there was another one. I have a friend I've known for almost 15 years. We entered Gnosis about the same time, but over the last year or so, she slowly left the path, secured a job, bought a home, and fell in love. It seems everything fell together for her when she left. Do certain karmic laws apply to people devoted to the path that are different from those who are not? Also, I don't know how to reconcile our relationship now that our purpose of life is so different, as I don't want to hurt her. Thank you. So, yes, there are two laws. There's... When it comes to karma, there is a superior law of karma for initiates, and that law is more severe. So if you're entering into the spiritual work, you can be subjected to very difficult ordeals because they're going to advance you. You can suffer the consequences of harmful actions from past lives very uh, early on in your life if that's what's required to help you to develop spiritually. Whereas for people who are not interested in spiritual development, they'll still have to suffer the same kind of karma for their actions, but it might come in a different way. They might get a period of bliss or material happiness um, only to find suffering later on. So the law of karma, which is action and consequence, cause and effect, applies to everyone. But for initiates, it's going to be more challenging early on because you need those ordeals to be able to really develop the strength of character for the spiritual work. It's a tremendous sacrifice to do the spiritual work, and so we have to go through that early on. And uh, Yes, and in terms of the second part of the question about how do we relate to someone when now our interest in life is very different, we have to take our self-interest out of it and find a way to still be a good, caring friend to that person but yeah, we might not be spending as much time with them. It might be naturally that people grow apart, and we can accept that. But the times when we are with that person, we should, as much as we might want to talk about what we're into and where we're at, we, we might need to sacrifice that to find a way to uh, be a benefit to the other person. Yeah, you had a question? Yeah, let's say uh, that you're experiencing some karma, and uh, it's physical pain. Should you uh, seek <laughs> this to alleviate that pain, or should you just endure it, uh, you know, just suffer through it and, and get, it, get it over with? It's a good question. Yeah. I, I, would say, I would say don't suffer needlessly, but at the same time be careful, because if the method to get rid of physical pain, for example, is using some kind of very addictive drug, then that could, that could really have a significant impact on your life and could, 10 years from now, your life could be in a really bad place. So, so it is important to seek some kind of alleviation of physical pain. If you alleviate the pain, you know. 
is it, is it just going to extend the karma? I see what you're saying. I no. see what you're saying. So you're, you're, you're not going to escape it. Yeah, okay. So if I have a headache and I take a Tylenol, does that mean, oh, no, I still owe Well, now you owe karma for taking the Tylenol, right? So, yeah, every, every action is going to have an effect. And I guess you have to trust your own instinct on that. But to just suffer needlessly, like some, some uh, priests used to like self-flagellate themselves and hurt themselves, and that's not going to be helpful for spiritual development. But sometimes karma, yeah, f experiencing physical pain can be a way to pay karma and therefore could be of benefit. Sometimes pain teaches us more than pleasure. But don't, be, don't allow yourself to just kind of like beat yourself up with it. I guess is what I'm getting at. If there's a way, a simple way to get out of that and then you use the benefit of not being in pain to do more good deeds, then that might be expedient. I guess it depends on the situation. Is there another question here? Yeah, we go. Okay. How does our vocation and calling in life relate to the hermit? Well, our vocation could be circumstantial, that it's just a matter of that's where we've happened to end up as a result of our previous actions. But the vocation as well could be related with our own idiosyncrasy of our spirit. Divinity has its own character and has ways that it can serve on a profound level. You can look at the music of Beethoven, you know, the art of Michelangelo. And we can see that their spirit was very well-developed and very awake and was bringing through their vocation a lot to of benefit to humanity. So in our vocation, if it's circumstantial, it's not really what we're passionate about or what's resonating with us on a spiritual level, then our vocation is a great way to serve and to begin changing as a person. Because if we are changing through our job and we're becoming of more benefit to people in whatever way that we're serving them, every job can serve people that's going to radically transform us and when we change internally the external life will change and as we learn about ourselves through becoming better people in our vocation then we might get a better sense of how we could be of more service and find that spiritual vocation that we're seeking what are some helpful advice to completely transmute a bad relationship into a good one when both persons really don't like each other what's the best thing to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess the question there is, first, what do you want from that relationship that you're going to, you know, really be attached to transforming that relationship? Sometimes you've got to let a relationship go if it's not of benefit. But if it's a relationship where two people don't really like each other, but there's some kind of real love there that connected them, whether it's friends or family or whatever, then I would say to, to study that part of yourself that's real love for that person. And by reflecting on that and strengthening that rather than strengthening your resentment and blaming the other person, that's going to really change your behavior. There's a simple technique in psychology from uh, REBT tradition, which is the ABCs. So when you want to reflect on yourself and your relationship to this person, you can look at, look at it through ABC. A is the activating event, which is whatever that person did or whatever happened in the environment that produced a reaction in you that activated your emotions. B is your belief. What belief did you have about what that person did? So if that person maybe took the last soda in the fridge, is your belief they did that on purpose because they didn't want me to have that soda? 
you know, or is your belief, oh, they were just thirsty and it happened to be the last one. That can make a really big difference. How do we interpret the other person's actions? We should always re recognize that our belief is just that. It's only a belief. It's not the truth of the situation. It's just our belief, our interpretation. And the C is the consequence. What did we do? What actions, feelings, or behaviors did we have as a result of what we believed about the situation? And if we're able to change our belief about the other person or their intentions, how would that change our, the consequence? How would that change our reaction? That's a really simple technique that you can use to reflect on things. Any more questions here? Yeah. I have always been on a spiritual journey, and I thought that I worked on a lot of getting rid of attachments and desires and things like that that were conscious within me, you know, as far as just things that might be perceived as negative by others. Like, I really tried to work to get rid of those desires. But what I found out in my 10 years of marriage is that um, I'm currently separated. We still live with each other. We still love each other, but we're working on our issues. And what I found out is that my desires came from a subconscious place, which were actually from my childhood. I lost my mother when I was younger, and I had a very um, tough childhood. So basically, my desires were not a negative thing like that I was, you know, it wasn't coming from a bad place. It was coming from more of a place that maybe wasn't healed within me. Is that also what you would think? Sometimes those desires could be. Yeah, so, so that's a really good point. So when we look at, we're talking about two different levels here. So there's the, the mundane, basic human needs that we need, and especially when we're children and we're very vulnerable, that we need. And a lot of the conflicts in our relationships when we're adults come from unresolved trauma from our childhood. And so what I'm talking about in the lecture about the hermit is kind of a level above that when we've already established a basic mental health. But yes, so if we have conflicts, deep-rooted traumas or needs that weren't met when we were children, then that unresolved and unconscious pain within ourselves can lead to painful cycles in our adult relationships. And that's why reflecting on oneself, you're going to see that. You're going to understand things about yourself that you didn't see before. So the ignorance of the fool, the young man, kind of rushing into things, that's youth, right? And maturity is when we've understood something about ourselves and what was driving us. And maybe it is a natural need, like we were neglected and we need love, and somebody comes along that can offer that to us. And when we understand that and we're no longer attached to it because we've seen that from a mature place, then we're able to have a healthy relationship. When we're just unconscious, we don't have that illumination, we're uh, blind tendencies all over the place coming out, that's when we can have a lot of problems in our relationships, even when there's love there, even when there's something really good there. It can be hard. That's exactly what happened. I basically took my emotional needs. I didn't even know I was doing this, and this is my awakening. Like, I'm going into the next level of my awakening with this. I was the fool in that marriage, blissfully in love, but I was putting emotional burdens mm -hmm. on him yeah. to be a fulfiller of love. In, and he also kind of triggered some fears of abandonment because um, he really loved to go out a lot and with his guy friends. And so when I was, when I was alone, I took that as like rejection or fear of abandonment. Mm -hmm. And then basically 
I just didn't know that was within me. And then now I'm healing it. I'm working on that. And now I feel like I'm in this like transition basically to do yeah. that. Like just what you said, you know, just, it just takes that awakening to realize that. And then you can move forwards. But yeah, I, I've never thought of desires being also, also coming from a very innocent place too. Like you're just, you need a desire to be loved yeah. or, you know, to nurture some old wound or something. Yeah. Because when you describe that, it's almost like you talk about my marriage right now. Right. Well, and well, it's, you know it's a common about? experience. Yeah, he fulfilled the need for a long time, but then he was like, okay, this is too much. Like, I need to focus on myself. Yeah. Well, and... And that's what's really important, too, because in our spiritual immaturity, that's where we're at. You know, we're still seeing things from the world and from other people, our basic needs. We're like infants. We don't have anything. To get to the point where we're totally reliant on God and divinity is a process, and it's not going to happen overnight. But sometimes that means that when we bring something to light, if you don't mind me to use your example, so you've recognized in that relationship, oh, what I was actually doing was I felt this unfulfilled need that I need that love and attention all the time and it became a burden. So when you become aware of that, it's not easy to let go of that need. It's still there. But maybe you're sitting at home and you're praying and you're, you're renouncing that desire to get what you want, to give, to give your partner the chance to get what he needs. Maybe that's some time out with friends or whatever. And that's where we start to move our, our center out from the world and into divinity. We're redirecting that energy that wants to claim something from the outer world and we're sacrificing it and it's painful and that's the solitude. That's the loneliness. So it's a really powerful example and very common, unfortunately. Yeah, so you can relate. Yeah, I was just saying, but you don't want to be unhappy. You don't want to always see it as a sacrifice for you. Sometimes it's just compatibility. We have different needs. How do you detach yourself from your own Thank desires? You. Well, I was just talking about that. Yeah. First, you have to see it. First, you have to see what you really desire. A lot of us on a conscious level just think, oh, well, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing what's good. I have totally altruistic motivations for what I'm doing. And we have to be really sincere with ourselves and dig a little deeper and really dig into what actually is driving this, this uh, behavior. And sometimes... Yeah, sometimes it's painful to recognize that it might be something selfish and something that's normal in a child, like the longing for affection. But when we become adults and we have to stand on our own, um, we have to renounce the ways of the child. And that can be painful. So it's a process. And then one more. Should we make time daily to exercise the body? Does this take away from our energy or the spiritual path with meditation? Well, if, if you're the person working in construction, then you're probably getting enough exercise. But yeah, if you're not, if you are in a job where you're not getting a lot of physical exercise, then yes, it's important to take care of our physical body. Absolutely. Health is holistic. It happens physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So taking care of your physical body can be important. But don't overdo it. Don't overexert yourself to the point where you're exhausted. And also recognize if what's driving you to take care of yourself is really because you want to be healthy or if it's vanity, because sometimes we have other intentions when we're working out. I actually had something that might be semi-relevant from school is that some forms of exercise such as Tai Chi and Qigong both exercise the body and yeah, the movement, that's a good idea. all those things, but at the same time, your 
benefiting the body by building energy, which which can be depending on which organs you're yeah. you know, doing the benefits for different things can actually help to support the meditation, the spiritual practices with that type of energy. So they might want to look into yes. something along those lines. That's a good idea. So if you really wanted to take care of your physical body, maybe Tai Chi, Qigong, the Gnostic runes, the Gnostic rites for rejuvenation, which we have on the website as well, uh, those can be really good ways to do that and awaken yourself spiritually at the same time. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.